Hi, everyone. Really nice to see all of you um, to Fawcett's Intelligent Corporation Group. Uh, we have a recurring guest here, um, which is uh, who is Balaji. And um, I think really you were one of our, you're still one of our most watched videos. You're only surpassed by Chiara Maletto, who made it to 110K views um, when she published her book with, um, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, under theory of David Dodge. And then it comes to you uh, straight away. And I think comments on the YouTube video are something like, this is the best thing I've seen on the internet and so much more relevant than everything else that is happening in schools. So, uh, all right. That's good. On this now. Um, but yeah, I'm really, really happy to have you here, um, to have you back on again. And, you know, this is kind of like a collaborative podcast, which we often do with this group where I ask a bunch of questions up front and then people here get to ask their questions. But to do a very brief intro, you know, you've kind of stumped companies uh, out of the ground as if there was no tomorrow. You were at A16Z for a while and now you've dedicated your time uh, to stomping network states uh, out of the ground uh, with much success. I think you've really kindled a few wonderful projects that I'm really excited to talk about. Um, but we first came across your work when writing Gaming the Future, the book. And it's not only the network state part that's really relevant to this, but like it comes with a bunch of other bits like decentralized defense and like a more longer facing kind of like promises of crypto technologies for civilization. And so I'm really happy to dig into those as well. But I got super excited about your work. And when before the book was published, joined your Discord and VR uh, university mm -hmm. meetings, which were amazing. Um, and yeah, so we also got to collaborate a bit on tech trees, which is also something of like major interest to you. So maybe we can dig down to that as well. But for now, I'm really, really happy to have you here. Um, and for everyone else, again, that algorithm is, I'm going to ask a few questions and then feel free to drop questions in the chat and we can kind of like go back and forth uh, as we see fit. Um, okay, cool. All right. So Sounds good. First, first thing up is what are you focused right now? Is it the network state? Hopefully. I mean, you just published a book. And then if you want to give a brief overview of like, how the hell did you get there? Um, uh, what got you started on your path and, and how is it to, you know, that you arrived at, at your current focus? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, so I've been thinking about these concepts for a long time. Um, how to get to the network state. It's because uh, I wanted to um, unlock innovation and longevity and uh, biomedical innovation more generally and realized that it's actually just as it was easier to start Bitcoin than to reform the Fed, it's literally easier to start a new country than to reform the FDA. And, um, you know, once you actually embrace the totality of that um, and you realize that while that sounds crazy, it's actually uh, less crazy than spending a lot of time trying to edit, you know, Schedule X or subpart Y of, of, of some regulation. Um Sometimes, you know, it's like Larry Page says, uh, sometimes 10x is easier than 10%, right? So once you kind of set that goal, well, you know, many people here are probably, would probably accept the premise that, uh, you know, we are sort of waking up from the vacation from history, that we're entering a period of volatility again. And uh, that volatility doesn't just have downside potential, it has upside potential. That is to say, uh, perhaps it's not just a, a time when, you know, bad things happen, but perhaps good things happen. Perhaps it's a time where we can start new countries again. And, uh, you know, what of what's my book about? It's about uh, a theory. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's got it's, it's version 1.0. Right. And what I want to try to do is update it every year 
Um, it's, you know, knock on wood. It's a big thing to update something every year. It's like a academic textbook, you know, first edition, second edition, third edition, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it'll converge on something. What am I work? So that's how I got here. Um, which is how to unlock biomedical innovation and, and like the Toyota five whys, you know, you ask why, 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 why all the way up, you know, why can't we innovate? Okay. Well, you know, there's this incredible amount of bureaucracy and process around it. It's not like, you know, phase one, two, three, and four clinical trials. It's not like S&P orbitals, right? It's not baked into the fabric of reality. These are man-made obstacles um, that did not exist at the time of Bainting and Best and when, you know, uh, drug development was a matter of willing doctor and willing patient. That's, that, those guys won the Nobel Prize, by the way, for for insulin. So so why did I get here? Because biomedical innovation was blocked. Starting a new country is actually literally easier than reforming the FDA. And what are the next steps is to make uh, the book real. Um, and, you know, so can we get if if it took about 13 years from the publication of the Bitcoin white paper to the recognition of uh, Bitcoin as national currency of El Salvador? Let's say a comparable time period from the publication of the network state to the recognition of the first network state. That's from work on next. Uh, not just getting it recognized, but building the thousand things that are required, the pipeline of thousands of startup societies, maybe tens of thousands, just like there's thousands of, you know, uh, YC companies before you get a Stripe or a Dropbox or an Airbnb, you know, it's about 3000 YC companies and about five that are over 50 billion last, last people checked before the crash, right? Maybe 10 billion. Um, there might be several thousand startup societies or crypto communities, and then one or two of them achieve diplomatic recognition, but that's changed the world. It's a peaceful way of actually doing political innovation. So that's what I'm focused on for, if that was the last 10 years, this, that's also the next 10 years. And what do you think that classifies as network state versus not? Like, I, you know, you and I, and many people here in this call, you know, have been following seasteading movements for a while, right. other cities. Uh, and so forth. And so is it just the software lay on this or is there anything in particular that is like a, you know, a very concrete, um, you know, concrete uh, goal here? I know that, for example, we have a lot of virtual and online communities now that are also kind of like volunteer communities of some extent. But I think your um, kind of like demand is really high, which is like, let's form them on the network and then move them into reality. So you're kind of like right. both meat space and cyberspace in this interesting way. And so what kind of classifies, what's your ideal, <laughs> idealized, um, form of a network state. Sure. Yeah. So just like, you know, there wasn't really a cryptocurrency before Bitcoin, but there were things that were sort of adjacent to it. However, Bitcoin, I think, had a few, several critical innovations, one of which was the decentralization. You know, there are a few things that Bitcoin introduced, none of which were completely new. You know, people had the concept of chains of hashes. Uh, Adam Back had the concept of hash cash. A lot of those pieces were out there, right? So, uh, you know, similarly, there's lots of things that people have talked about on the internet as being state-like, right? But insofar as I've made a contribution, I think it's a synthesis of a bunch of things that based on both modern technology and the historical process of state formation are likely to produce an entity that is capable of actually achieving diplomatic recognition and is therefore a digital cognate of a country in the same way that Bitcoin is a digital cognate of offline gold. Okay. And so, what, what, for example, you know, what is different about the a network state? So let me first give like a 
kind of this informal definition. Okay. And then let me kind of contrast it. I do this in the book as well, but I'll contrast it to various other things that exist right now. So in one sentence, a network state is a highly aligned online community with the capacity for collective action that crowdfunds territory around the world and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. Okay. So highly aligned online community right there that knocks out uh, Twitter or Facebook, right? Why? Well, here, Memberstone actually really have skin in the game and like the long-term uh, goals that they're working towards. But, you know, it's, it's pretty much, and I, I know that you find this out a lot. I think you're, for a while, your pin tweet was even, uh, how can we get off Twitter? Go over here or something. Yeah, yeah, it's still that. It's still that, right? Like Twitter is basically, um, the, the reason is Twitter is a combination between a library and Liberia, right? It is, you know, civil discussion and a civil war. And uh, you know, it, it's something where people will just shoot at each other and in the midst of a conversation and then resume the conversation, you know, and that's because, you know, what is Twitter? It's a combination of it's it's 330 something million people from around the world that are uni unified by nothing more than the desire for intellectual stimulation, which can mean learning something or fighting someone. Right. And uh, so it's not something where people have shared values. They don't, uh, you know, there's nothing you can, you, they don't think of themselves as Twitterians. You know, they, they know what Twitter is, but it's more like the battleground that they enter each day. Uh, it's like all, you know, all the people who play a video game, they don't think of themselves as on the same team. In fact, quite the contrary, if it's something where they shoot each other. Um, so right there, highly aligned online community that knocks out Twitter and, and so on and so forth. Okay. Now you go to something, let's say like a, like a Facebook group or a, uh, you know, a message board or a subreddit that starts to get more aligned. There's leadership. There's a, there's a moderator. Okay. But capacity for collective action is very weak. Um, in the sense that, uh, you know, a, maybe with a subreddit or for example, let's say you've got a bunch of folks that are following somebody on Twitter or they're, they're in a Facebook group. What fraction of them can you get to take an action, even to like a post? There's a thousand people, um, you know, for, let's say you've got a million people on Twitter who follow you, like a thousand like posts is actually fairly high. Okay. That's one out of a thousand people actually doing something, you know, so conversion rate is 0.1%. So the capacity for collective action online is actually quite low. And this is something which, you know, is worth just hovering on. You know, this is one of the reasons I think the internet is still only a shadow of what it will become. It's still very entropic, you know, like heat is all these molecules, you know, moving in different directions. And then like work is forced along a distance. And um, if you think about what, what is Reddit, what is Hacker News, what is Twitter? It's just a bunch of random stuff. You go to Hacker News, it's 30 random links. You refresh again tomorrow, it's 30 random links. It's just higgledy-piggledy. You're going here, you're going there, right? And that's actually why, you know, you it's not that easy to get collective action online. You have to get these molecules that are going all in these higgledy-piggledy different directions to align along one axis. Not that easy. Um, so just right there, the capacity for collective action, that knocks out quite a lot of other groups, okay? So now you might say, um, okay, a company. And a company is closer in some ways because it does have a capacity for collective action. You have 100 people in a company and you put out an all hands, you'll probably get on the order of 100% of people attending that all hands. Okay, but it's not really a community because it's a company. A company is not the same as community. In a community, people tend to have different employers, but shared values. 
uh, in a company that are all under the same employer, it's a little, it's a little too focused in some ways, you know, whereas, uh, and they've got a lot of shared risk. They can all go down or up together. It's a little too volatile. Whereas community people tend to have different jobs and, and, and so on. Um, but a company does have a capacity for collective action. And then a, a little bit more of the definition, crowdfund territory around the world. Now we do start getting something relatively unusual. I mean, uh, if you're a multinational tech company like Google or Facebook, you do have offices around the world. You swipe a badge. You, you're in a little piece of Google. It's like the embassy of Google somewhere around. It flies a flag, right? You walk in, you see the, you know, the signage. Perhaps there's a tasteful mix of, you know, Bangalore's architecture and the Google logo in the background or Berlin's, right? Or, or Boston's, but it's a, it's a piece of Google somewhere around the world, Google embassy. And that's the same for Facebook. That's the same for any multinational. That's the same for Starbucks. That's the same for all of these places that have become in a sense, a home away from home. Right. Um, and so we know that that works for commercial real estate. Can that work for residential real estate? Right. We have not actually done that where it's a community that's crowdfunding territory to live together as opposed to a company that's purchasing territory in order to, you know, kind of network together into real estate or commercial office space, right? Um, I actually finally, have a community that's called the Embassy Network. And so we have okay. one in San Francisco, one in a castle in France, and there's like different kind of like embassies across the world um, where you can like float relatively freely between if you want to. But, you know, we don't really have like, we have like governance, um, potential APIs and so forth that people can plug and play. But it's it's really difficult because... Uh, no city really wants you to live together that way. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Why do you say no city wants you to live together? They want single uh, occupancy kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 They, they are pretty um, family or normal family oriented. Right. 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 Exactly. So, so the thing is that, um, you know, once you start having collective living, you start sometimes going outside of existing zoning. People are like, oh, you all want to live next to each other? That's weird. Why don't you all live on totally different streets of totally different, you know, buildings and, and so on, right? So um, so basically, this concept of an aligned online community, capacity for collective action, crowdfunds territory around the world, and then finally, gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. That last bit is, again, unusual. There are precedents for it. So, you know, I've mentioned like... Uh, GoDaddy did a deal with Tuvalu for the .tv domain. Um, Wyoming uses Ethereum for online incorporation. Uh, Miami and El Salvador uh, and New York, you know, in Miami and New York, they the mayors are paid in Bitcoin. In El Salvador, Bitcoin's a national currency. In Nevada, they did a deal with Tesla for the Giga factory. Um, Virginia did a deal with Amazon for HQ2 and so on and so forth. So there are deals between sovereigns, whether cities, U.S. states or countries on the one hand, and companies and currencies, on the other hand. And the question is, can we extend that to online communities, right? I think we can. So each of these pieces, when I talk about highly aligned online community, capacity for collective action, crowdfunds territory around the world, gains diplomatic recognition, each of these pieces, there's like sub-modules, you know, there's, there's things that kind of exist, but we haven't like snapped them all together. And, and I think if you do, you get something that's a cognitive estate. Um, and that's why there's lots of stuff out there when, when you say, you know, are people building network states? It's a, it's funny because on the one hand, uh, it's cool to see um, lowercase network state become like a term very, very quickly. Like it took a long time for Google to become Googling or Uber to become Ubering. But if you go to search.twitter.com and you just put in network state, that's the thing, right? Like people talk about it. And of course, when people talk about it, any term, you can only pack so much into a few syllables. 
uh, it's a little bit like, you know, Clayton Christensen introduced this term of disruption. And he had this very specific technical concept of what that was supposed to mean. And it's supposed to mean like innovation that came in from the low end and then it disrupted the high end innovation. And people just used it as a general term for tech blowing somebody's shit up. Okay. Um, and so it was, it was something which became just a, you know, it, it subsumed the other definition, but it wasn't the precise technical definition that he wanted. But of course, the common English language definition dominated that. Right. And so what I find is that people are kind of casually are talking about network states and they're referring to like their DAO as a network state or something like that. And so I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. And, you know, there may be, it's, it's you know, I don't want to be like the Academy Francais and be very, um, I don't know, uh, like, like a very verbally dictatorial or whatever on it, right? Um, but but I do think that if you prepend the term recognized network state, that gets closer to what I had. Did, should I tell you about, you know, the four phases of the network state? Did we talk about that? Should I talk about that from the book? Uh, yeah, yeah. Why not talk okay. about it? And I do okay. just want to say in terms of definition, you know, we've seen it all before with AI, that back in the day, yeah. AI meant, like AI meant artificial general intelligence. Now we have to have a new term for general intelligence. Back in the day, it's nanotechnology meant like actually atomic precise. And, right. and it became something totally else. And it's partly like, a compliment, you know, to the success yeah. of the work. I think sure. you know, it just gets <laughs> gets used. But yeah, that's pretty terrible. And also, where it, will we end up in like in these thirteen years? I think before that, with Bitcoin, you mentioned okay, it took thirteen years. Uh, yeah, for Bitcoin dev recognition, like where could we be in like I don't know in in about thirteen years? And like yeah, what's the what's the path there? Great question. So, um, so first is recognize network state. It's good. The the comparable to AGI is a good comparable, right? So. Artificial general intelligence um, versus just AI in general. Um, so, so basically, the four phases of the network state that I describe in the book are uh, number one, startup society. You just got a guy, you know, person in their dorm room, um, and you know, somebody, you know, with a laptop somewhere with a dream. Okay, uh, they've got a concept of, you know, they're like Theodor Herzl. Um, they've got a concept for what they think should be a state. Um, they're the next Lee Kuan Yew. They're the next Washington. Um, they're, they're the potential founder of a country. And then the next step is what I call a network union, where that person has taken a bunch of people online and sewed them together into a unit that's capable of collective action. Could be as simple as having 10 people there and you get 10 likes, 100 people, you get 100 likes. It's as simple and as hard as that. Why is that hard? Well, probably whatever app or forum you use for that looks different than Twitter or Discord. Because they're not really built for, you know, the focusing energy of everybody doing the same thing at the same time. You know, they are built for people milling around and chatting and having fun. Discord is built for playing video games, not for building buildings. Um, and so, you know, you, you might have, and the reason I say that is if you think about Slack, for example, in the 2000s and early 2010s, people thought that Facebook for work would look like Facebook. In fact, Facebook itself thought that. Slack actually got pretty far. No, uh, it's like um, Yammer actually got fairly far, sold to for a billion to Microsoft on that premise. But having you know a Facebook for work, which was just posting a lot of photos, didn't really feel like work to people. And it turned out that Slack was actually the right paradigm. The UX was different. It was more text-heavy, less images. It was a little more keyboard-driven than Facebook. It was a little more lean-forward than lean-back. It was more mobile-friendly. There are a few things that Slack did. Slack was actually Facebook for work. It was IRC, not social networking. And so it may turn out that the interface for tasking, for for getting people to do 
you know, a hundred percent of of the people to do something um, looks different than Discord and looks different than Twitter. We don't know what it looks like yet. Okay, so so that's step two: build a network union, this digital group that's capable of collective action. Step three is now you actually take it into the physical world. You have what I call a network archipelago. And that is, you know, a group of territories around the world that you've crowdfunded. You, that collective action, you go from 100 people liking something to 100 people crowdfunding something or 1,000 people or 10,000 people. And it can be as simple as literally two people living together in a group house. That's a huge step forward, in fact. Or 10 people, you know, getting a, like a, like several houses together in a cul-de-sac. Um, and now you start actually distilling the cloud you know, materializing the cloud out of the air onto the land. Okay. And uh, so that's a network archipelago. And this is literally just co-living communities at this point, but of arbitrary and unbounded scale because they're just networked together by the internet. Okay. In the same way that the islands of Indonesia are separated by ocean, the islands of these, but they think of themselves as part of the same country, right? Think about Hawaii and the continental US, 2000 miles away, but both parties on both sides think of themselves as part of the same country. In the same way, you can have islands of territory arbitrarily separated by internet rather than ocean that think of themselves as part of the same community. Okay. So that's a concept of the network archipelago. And with, you know, mixed reality where you have like AR glasses and you can just see, you know, right now what we're in is we're in a Zoom. And in the Zoom, you know, people are like from around the world. It's true, but it's not that immersive. Okay. But soon we'll have. AR glasses. And if you've seen some of the demos, I tweeted about some of this, you would literally be able to have a room with 30 people as holograms. Okay. In 3D. That's coming. It's like, you, you can see the demos. Microsoft has this thing that I, that I tweeted about. Apple is working on this. Everybody's working on this. Okay. So that really does start to be death of distance in some ways. It's more convenient to people traveling. They don't even have to appear as themselves. They can appear as their best dressed version of themselves, whatever. Okay. Just like your Zoom background. Okay. Um, they can appear as, you know, a totally different person. They can appear as a pseudonymous person. So once that happens, the networking, these network archipelagos start to get more, more tightly linked. I mean, one of the things I point out in the book is the internet increases the value of enclaves. Let's say it used to be that territory that was just surrounded by another piece of land wasn't that useful because it was landlocked and because it needed a port because, you know, getting access to the ocean was the original peer-to-peer network. That's how Portugal could connect to Brazil and Macau without going overland, right? And so, you know, access to the ocean was so critical. And that's why basically a lot of these countries have sort of evolved to have, you know, access to the ocean. But now there's a different port. It's on every computer, okay? It's a peer-to-peer port. And so an internet, an enclave can be networked to another enclave and another one just instantly via the internet. And you can actually sew together lots of these fractal pieces of land into this network archipelago. And then finally, you get the network state where that network archipelago achieves some form of diplomatic recognition. Now, one thing I want to make clear is you might have a thousand people do a startup society and then a hundred become a network union and 10 become a network archipelago for one that becomes a recognized network state. And that's fine because those intermediate forms, the network union could be a guild. It's never even meant to become a network archipelago. The network archipelago, I give examples of like uh keto community or other kinds of things. There's many you could think of. If you want Japanese immersion, you want language immersion, you want cultural immersion. Um, you know, you, you, you don't have to necessarily change the law in order to have value from living together. Okay. And I'll show you a little visual here. Um, can I display something or do you want to display something? 
See if you can display this. You're cool. Sure. See if I can. This is really. Da, da, da. Here we are. Don't display something. Okay. Can you guys see the screen? Yep. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> so that is the concept of the network state going from one person. Sometimes pictures worth a thousand words. So one guy in Tokyo goes to 17, 172, 1,729, 70,000, 1.72 around the world. Okay. So you go one, 10, 100,000, 10,000, 100,000, and you're just building a digital movement. And you've got this census at the top that shows you the population, income, and real estate footprint of this movement. And you can see the buildings get more sophisticated. You know, they start with just somebody in their room, and then they start leveling up. <clears throat> As the community gets larger, you have little towns and then, you know, whole like subunits of cities. Okay. Nothing prevents people from doing this. There's no technological limitation on this. It's simply about aligning people behind a common cause online, um, you know, in a way that hasn't been done. One thing I, you know, said is like, you know, the network state is to meetup.com what eHarmony is to Tinder. Okay. And in the sense that, you know, you have um you have folks that are actually meeting up for the purposes of a quote, serious relationship, but with a community, not with another person. Right. Yeah, I love and, it. And that's new. Okay, go ahead. I think like one thing, you know, that um, I don't know if you've read the post, but um, like this old Slater Codex post on the archipelago and a comic community, atomic communitarianism, where basically Scott Alexander lays out this land of like a bunch of different um, islands on the archipelago, all are value aligned voluntary communities in, an, in a utopia where they all kind of voluntarily cooperate with each other. And one big thing that he kind of like sets as a condition here is like, well, they need to be independent, like in terms of externalities that could be so problems and uh, war and violence between them. And so, you know, I would love to hear a little bit more because you thought, I think, really deeply and really well about the concept of decentralized defense. And I think that, you know, in, I think it, it is something that's extremely, extremely undervalued topic right now, because I think usually our standard responses to defense are like really heavily relying on the nation state. And so I would be really curious, like, what, how can these, um, you know, new sovereignties defend themselves? And in general, like, how do we kind of have a decentralized defense system in place as technologies and risks from, you know, a smaller number of actors being able to cause larger and larger damage to the world? Like, as these technologies proliferate, like, how the hell can we get decentralized defense in place? Sure. So many comments on this. So basically, um, the... Um, so somebody somebody's iPhone entered the waiting room. I just admitted them. I'm not sure who that is, but um, the um, so many many kind of comments on this. But um, basically, uh, when it comes to decentralized defense, um, I think the entire paradigm of how people think about the the state is incorrect. Um, and why is that? Well, so. Um, First is, 
if you think about Bitcoin or Ethereum, they have managed to endure. So I'll give like five or six different overlapping points. Okay. Um, so first is Bitcoin or Ethereum have defended hundreds of billions of dollars for on the order of a decade without a military, right? Without a police force. And um, this is the kind of thing that people would normally fight about. Yet somehow they managed to get, you know, as I've said before, like a Democrat or a Republican, a, an Israeli or a Palestinian, Japanese person, Chinese person. They disagree about many things, but they agree about how much Bitcoin each person has on the Bitcoin blockchain. They can get digital consensus on these bytes. And then from that, they can get consensus on larger strings of bytes on um, on other things. And um, so, so number one is we have kind of an example of property being defended digitally online. And in fact, there's a lot of innovation on this. Uh, and that's not just property, that's identity, that's basically stocks, bonds, you know, commodities, all kinds of things can be defended insofar as they're purely digital in this thing. Okay. Then number two is you can extend that to offline stuff. Why? Because uh, you have your smart locks for your apartments and your cars, and you have all of these digitally gated private spaces, you have elevators that, you know, you need a, a you know, a, a key to a digital, you know, card key that you have to swipe in order to go to a certain floor. And in, in theory, of course, is it possible to hotwire these things? It's possible, but it's quite difficult. Um, I mean, yes, they're electromechanical. In theory, you might be able to like hijack them and go to a certain floor or hijack the Tesla car, but in practice, very difficult to do. And so that means that a lot of physical property can be similarly digitally gated, right? Whether it's a car, whether it's a house, whether it's other kinds of things, you can have kind of a digital unlock, okay? So that now means a very large amount of property can be defended by the uh, by encryption, by cryptography. It's a different rather than by you know, the state's violence. This is you know, the sovereign individual thesis, but it's actually playing out. It's been playing out for the last 10 years with Bitcoin and Ethereum. I don't think people realize how big this will get because it's a little bit like, um, for example, Allison, how much time did you spend online in the year 2000? Like what fraction of your day? Very little. Uh... Very little, right? Okay. Now, how much in the year 2010? Considerable amount, I'd say probably more than now. <laughs> more? Oh, really? More than now? In 2010? Okay, fine. So how much of your day do you spend online now? Like basically, uh, you know, a majority of your waking hours? Yeah, yeah. It depends really on the day, but sometimes yes. Fine. Okay. So if you think about two axes, right, or three, which are the number of people, the number of hours in the day. So you've got like, you know, let's say fraction of the world, number of hours in the day that they spend online and then time on this axis, okay? You you go from maybe a few million people spending a few percent of their time online to billions of people spending at least 10% of their time online, maybe more like 30 or 40%, right? That's where we are today. And that's where we're going to go with cryptocurrency. We are, you know, a whatever, we're about 300 million people worldwide that hold some cryptocurrency, Let's say that's on the order of 0.1% of their net worth. Okay, I think that's an underestimate, let's just say. So by 2030, you're going to have a billion people and it'll be like 10% of their net worth. And by 2040, it'll be like billions of people and it'll be more than 50% of their net worth. It'll be like comparable to say. It might happen faster or slower than that, but I'm just giving the directionality, okay? So that means that property is becoming cryptography. It's not, I mean, in a sense, international law didn't even exist before the blockchain. 
You know why I say that? Because no. for okay, so I've I've gave this example before, but let's say you're in you're in Brazil, okay. You want to acquire a company, you're you're CEO of a company in Brazil, you want to acquire a company in Bangladesh. Okay, how many Brazil Bangladesh deals are there each year? Not many. So what are what are your regulatory obligations? What are your tax obligations? Nobody knows. How many, you know, people who speak both por- Portuguese and Urdu are there? Not too many. So what do you do? You basically go and you probably set up a US hub that intermediates because there's definitely been US Brazil deals, there being US Bangladesh deals, okay? And so the direct peer-to-peer doesn't exist there. So you go through a hub of the US. You might also go through the hub of China, which definitely exports to both countries, right? Exports or imports from both countries, okay? And so there are Chinese companies that also do business with both, right? And so the thing is that really you don't have a global economy. You have a hub and spoke economy where there is the US and there is China. And those are the two possibilities for doing international deals of substantial magnitude until cryptocurrency. Now that Brazilian and Bangladeshi can collaborate on a smart contract and they can diligence it in the universal language of computer science and they can send payments back and forth and they can crowdfund something together and they can do this outside the US or the Chinese court system. And this is the thing that I've been talking about, which is that you know people have taken for granted that America is uh, is the world's largest integrated market, which is why you start in the U.S. Or China is the world's second largest, so you can also start in China, like we or stay in China, like WeChat and these others. But now there's a third, and that is actually the global internet, which is distinct and not coterminous with the other two. And that global internet is achieving rule of law, it's achieving property rights, achieving all this stuff. And because it's decentralized and distributed, it's not something where you're moving police around the world or military around the world. Now, again, this works for digital stuff. But as I've talked about, that digital stuff guards a lot of physical stuff with the smart locks and things like that. And uh, even though it's a it's a small slice of the world's net worth today, I think it'll be a larger and larger slice tomorrow, just like Internet time became a larger slice. So that right there, it gives a big chunk of the world that is digital property rights. Okay. And it gives the reason that that grows because it's got all the peer-to-peer. Everybody who wants to, what happens is first you transact, right? Bitcoin just gives raw transactions. Once you transact, you want contract, right? Why? Because not everything is just an instant payment between A and B. Perhaps B is sending something back like shares or B is sending back, you know, A is sending a loan and B is sending back 10 payments on that loan. So then you get smart contracts and you go up one level and you start having actually financial statements and entire companies. Okay. Then you start having M&A and then you start, you know, so basically each level, it's like you have a payment, then you have a contract, then you have a, you know, financial statement or a company, right? Then you have a group of companies that are acquiring each other and have, you know, intercompany relationships. Then you have an economy, right? That is how this whole thing is building out, right? It's like, um, it's like building the economy, Federal Reserve first. You start with gold and you kind of, it's like a reverse tornado. Okay. So all of that builds online and then it has hooks offline into the, you know, the smart locks and smart doors and stuff, all of which, again, there's proof points for it already at fairly large scale. Tesla's all smart locks. And that right there defends a lot with cryptography. Okay. But then what about, what about the fact that the government has nukes? Aren't you so naive, tech bro, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Fine. Well, here's the thing that visual that I showed earlier, um, you may remember this, you know, do you know why? Or one of the reasons the internet was invented in the first place, like one of DARPA's cited reasons, or ARPA. Yeah, it was to to uh, survive 
nuclear attack. Exactly. That's right. So we might have to go back to the future. Okay. Back to the future, to the original motivation. Because see, if I had just said that the network state is nuke-proof, a fractal polity is nuke-resistant. People wouldn't necessarily believe you. But then you go back to that original definition. You're like, oh, the reason the internet was built in the first place. You know, like people talk about the reason for the season. Okay. So the um, the justification for the internet was a communications network that would stand up in the event of nuclear attack. And in fact, you know, in many ways, there's a, this is a little bit tongue in cheek, but, you know, if my, you know, some vision for the future is uh, the apocalypse, but with internet. Okay. So all old institutions melt down, but the internet stays up. This is what happens in war zones, right? All kinds of things melt down, but the internet somehow stays up because it's built to be like highly robust. Okay. So you can send photos, videos of the crazy things, you know, that are happening, right? This is what's going on, not just in Ukraine, but Syria and a bunch of other places around the world, right? And um, so that premise that the internet will stay up when a lot of other things go down is actually being tested and found to be true. It's not trivial. You have to get Starlink and these, you know, cell towers and stuff pretty robust, but it is seemingly working. The internet is like the last thing that goes down. So if that's the case, uh, well, now you've got something. Why, why, by the way, just to go a little bit deeper, why is the network state, why is a fractal polity nuclear resistant? Well, a nuclear weapon is a political tool. The whole point of it is like all weapons, all weapons are political tools. It's bang, 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 words, 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 right? You're, you're shooting somebody until you get them to submit and, you know, like unconditional surrender was the whole thing with, you know, Germany and Japan, for example, during World War II, right? You have certain terms that you want the other guy to accede to. If he doesn't accede to it. Then you beat them up. And then, you know, you say, you're ready to talk now. You keep beating them up, right? That's why people say, you know, war is politics by other means. You have political goals that you're attempting to achieve with violence being a tool to achieve that political goal. Now, what that means, though, is that you need surgical violence. You need violence of a kind that is just enough to scare them, to intimidate them, to demoralize them, but not so much that it, you know, like hits, for example, your allies or it, uh, you know, for example, the bombing of um, it, when the U.S. in, in the 90s, it, it bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, right? You did not mean to do that. That was not a surgical act, right? It caused an international incident. Um, and it, what it wanted to do is just bomb the guys that it wanted to bomb. And so that's the issue with uh, a really large nuclear weapon um, is you, yeah, you might nuke, if you could find it, you, you might nuke one of these startup societies, but you also nuke everything else near it. You, If it's in the middle of Japan, it's 100 people in Japan, you nuke it, but you kill a lot of other Japanese people. And now you've got an international incident. So these kind of area effect weapons become less useful when your population is not concentrated in one area. The entire, it's kind of like, you know, people talk about how you can see the Great Wall from space, like the Great Wall of China from space. Certain technologies are powerful enough that they change the very geography of human political organization. And the combination, the internet and nuclear weapons, internet is the answer in some ways to quote nuclear weapons. In the event, you know, I, I tweeted about this, which is, you know, right now people are assuming that either A, there will be no use of nuclear weapons, or B, that it's a total exchange and the world ends. Hopefully the world doesn't end, Okay. I think, unfortunately, there's an option C, which I think of as the stupidest option, which is we sort of idiocratically lapse into a use of nuclear weapons or even an exchange, which causes, obviously, you know, global economic crash and, and, and so on and so forth. But then life goes on. And the nuclear taboo is being broken. Okay, I think this is a likely outcome. 
And, uh, you know, why, why do I think that's likely? Because it reminds me of kind of pre-COVID where people were sort of sleepwalking towards this thing and then they overreact, right? There's only two, two modes that, you know, much of the West has, which are A, apathy and B, panic, right? So it's apathy, oh, what can happen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then B, oh my God, and freak out for a while, right? So if that happens, if the use of nuclear weapons is unfortunately normalized, if the taboo is broken, you need to start thinking about nuclear-resistant polities and said distributed state. You can't nuke, you know, Bitcoin mining and you can't nuke the network state. And the other aspect of it is you can have a secret state. Not all those nodes on the network are necessarily revealed, right? You could have 100 nodes and only 30 of them are public and the other 70 are encrypted. You re-encrypt the map. You go back to the 1400s or before where there were here be dragons on the map, okay? And you have, you know, this is actually something, by the way, one of my less obvious predictions is um, I think over the last 20 or 30 years, what we did is we put the entire world online in unencrypted form. Okay. So everybody can find anybody's face. They can find their name. They can stalk them online. Future people will think that that was such an uncivilized way to live that we did that before we had pseudonymity and cryptography and so on and so forth. And so all those borders, you were not like your real name was not uh, meant built for the internet, right? It was, it was something that was a, is a global identifier True, but it wasn't something that's was meant to be put into search engines and stuff. It's not adapted for that. It simultaneously gives away too much information and too little. Too much information because people can stalk you. Too little because, let's say, Allison, you know, is not actually that specific an identifier, but Allison D.eth is the specific person. And then that is something where you can pay or you can uh you can look up files, you can upload files, you can do all these things, right? So it's a programmable name, like a like a you know, Ethereum name, right? So many of these these pieces of the the current world were not built for being uploaded, uh, including real name, real face, et cetera. And one of my premises, one of the things I think a lot about is that we're going to re-encrypt the world. We're kind of already going there with Signal and WhatsApp, with pseudonyms online, right? With what I call the pseudonymous economy, where you don't just have a pseudonymous face online, you earn online. With, you know, kind of return to, you know, shelter and shade and private societies. Um, you know, you can't hit what you can't see. And if the mob can't see you and doesn't know about you, they can't be as mimetic. And uh, you don't necessarily need to have a huge amount of attention. You don't necessarily need a huge amount of fame. What you need is the freedom to be able to operate. Fame is in some ways sort of anti-correlated with freedom. The more people who are paying attention to what you're doing, the more constrained you are, right? Which is a non-obvious point. And so this concept of like re-encrypting the world, I think, is another aspect of defense. Finally, I'll get to one point One point on defense. So what I've talked about so far on defense, right? A, that Bitcoin and Ethereum have guarded hundreds of billions of dollars. B, that they can guard other kinds of property beyond just Bitcoin and Ethereum, including all the stuff with smart contracts. C, they can guard offline property because anything that's unlocked with a smart lock, which includes cars, houses, et cetera, can be guarded this way. D, uh, that also combines with the distributed physical nature of a network state to make you nuke resistant. E, you can have nodes of the network state encrypted so that people can't even see them. You know, maybe, you know, a visitor can see 30 of 100 nodes and then you level up and the capital cities can't be seen until you're, you know, uh, several layers in or several years in. Okay. And then um, the last, but certainly not the least, is if you remember in 2020, the this will be somewhat, I don't know, maybe somewhat controversial. I don't think it's that controversial at this point. It is just a fact that. Um, across the country in the U.S. during BLM, the police kneeled to the rioters, okay? 
1991 in the Soviet Union, um, the tanks did not fire upon Yeltsin. Okay. Why is that? Why is it that the guys with the guns did not fire the guns? They, they kneeled or they held fire. The answer is because a moral argument had wended its way through the airwaves into their eyes and ears and delegitimated the use of force on the crowd. Okay. In the Soviet Union, it was, they had seen enough blue jeans and rock and roll to say, okay, that's good. And, uh, you know, firing on the crowd would be bad. And so what's upstream of the soldiers is the morality of those soldiers, the ideas in their heads. They're not simply automatons. They won't simply fire. And so that's why the media campaign, the story that you're telling, I mean, a third example is Gandhi's use of nonviolence in India to get independence, right? So there is a way, if you're good enough at arguing, if you're good enough at media, if you're good enough at content, you can, I mean, that's why people say the pen is mightier than the sword, right? You can morally delegitimate the use of violence against your people. And in the same way that you might have a brave soldier who would risk their lives, you would have a brave activist who would stand like tank man and, the, you know, right? Like in a sense, they would be, uh, you know, like their resistance is filmed. And so that ampl- is amplified where, you know, they are clearly going in without arms saying, you know, like, leave us alone, please. Right. And the same kind of bravery of a soldier who sometimes takes on a difficult mission, they would kind of go and do something like that. Right. You don't obviously the goal is not for them to die, but they are prepared to die. Right. And um, so, so you can actually, I think, get very, very far with nonviolent defense. Now, there is a counter argument to this. The counter argument is. China's drone armada. Okay. I do think that is coming, which is to say, basically, uh, everything I just talked about was morally influencing the soldiers. Human soldiers are not automatons, but robots are automatons. And robot war is a possibility, right? So against that, you have to think about encryption. Now, the thing is, when I start stacking all of this stuff, I'm like, AR communities, you know, drone war, encrypted societies, like crypto smart locks and so on. It's like, ah, oh, you're so crazy or whatever. But basically what I'm just doing is trying to take the internet seriously. I'm looking at all this stuff, which I see at 0.1% or 1% with a lot of energy behind it. And like an angel investor, I'm sort of projecting out what that world looks like when those things have all gone to fixation as a, as a population genesis, let's say, as they go to like, you know, 100%. Um, so that's kind of how I think about the security environment in the future. And the, the last thing I would just say is that, uh, of course, not being naive, you know, there's a lot of transitional phases. And what you'd want to do is contract with a city, a U.S. state, or a country, and just be under their defense umbrella. That's the obvious like reverse compatibility. Just like you have a cryptocurrency exchange that has a crypto to fiat currency exchange, right? You would have diplomatic relationships between a crypto country and a fiat country, such that a passport holder of one might have some reciprocity from another, Okay. And uh, so, so that's kind of a multifarious answer to the defense question. Um, but hopefully that gives something interesting there. Go ahead. Yeah, I love it. I, I do think we need to think about that as we move into that world. Otherwise, we have the default structures. Uh, I want uh, the opportunity for Mark to ask a question. And then I do want to, in the last minutes, get to tech trees, longevity, and AI. Because I think sure. so far, I like I, I would be really, really curious about yeah your, your thoughts on AI too. Okay, Mark, go for it. <laughs> Yeah, as when I first heard about the network state, um, 
Uh, yeah, there was, I, I was nodding my head a lot. It was very much sort of along the lines that, that I'd been dreaming until you extended into the physical world. And then I was really mm-hmm. kind of amazed and shocked. And, and, uh, um, and that really is a step that you took that's very different than like the steps in the old cypherpunk thinking. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, the visions like true names of the other realm where we're, where, you do have what is effectively a polity, but it's a polity that is populated only by our virtual selves. It has no physical reality. And our virtual selves, the reason why the story is named True Names is it's protected by pseudonymity. And you're, you're all, you know, everybody's very protective that the pseudonymity is not traced back to their physical selves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bitcoin is part of the reason it was able to grow through its 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 infant mortality phase and not get shut down by governments is it wasn't at a place it, it didn't have a physical reality um it was it was in this pure virtual world that was created by physical miners and physical miners once they started using a lot of energy uh uh, couldn't couldn't hide and were subject to coercion by governments, but the Bitcoin system as a whole isn't in a place and is not subject to that coercion. And one of the things that really surprised me is that the is that governments largely didn't try. That uh, when you every time it seemed like they were gearing up to try, it's like they realize there's no there there. There's nothing to gain by trying to coerce this thing that isn't in a place that has no physical manifestation. Um, so when I think about the network state, I think it's very, very bold and great that you're extending into physical reality. But I think that that the image we should paint is one where most of the mass of what is considered the network state of what is effectively the new polity isn't anywhere absolutely absolutely physical. yeah yeah so 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 i so mark i i very much agree that's why i've kind of got a one-liner on this uh cloud first land last but not land never and with that right so that means absolutely the the community lives online the spirit lives online and that's like in a sense the fundamental you know the, that's where the social network is that's where the cryptocurrency is that is where the data is. That is where the software is. All of that is there. But then this thing has tendrils and it materializes in the physical world. And if any one of those tendrils is cut off, this town of a hundred is invaded, this town of a thousand is regulated, then those tendrils withdraw and then they redistribute, you know, to the rest of the world. Right. So, um, it's like a diaspora, but it's a digital diaspora because, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the Jewish diaspora or the Indian diaspora, like, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, um, you know, to, to make a telephone call to India was whatever dollars a minute. It was quite expensive, right? You might send letters and those were, those had a long delay. So the bandwidth of the connectivity was far, 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 far less than, you know, the era of Skype and now WhatsApp where you have instant free video calling, right? So now you have like high bandwidth connections between folks who are totally on different parts of the world. That has just totally changed the geography of the world. And so thus, even if somebody knocks out one physical thing, your cloud entity can just reform them later, right? For example, take this group. Um, if you wanted people, there, there was that meetup, Allison, where'd you guys do it? You did it in like Palo Alto or something like that, right? 
that yeah. beer hall, yeah. right? Yeah. But if you had put a different pin on the map, the cloud could have materialized there. Right? That's like something we take for granted. But taking that as a subroutine and then using that systematically, I think is very important. We're really going back to like the other mode of human organization. We've been in the farmer soldier mode for the last several thousand years. And the nomadic people, the border people have been like the exception. But if you go further back than that, everybody was a hunter gatherer and they just roamed the world. It was the ultimate quote, open borders. There were no borders, right? There was no ability to defend borders. You had a culture that was borderless, right? In a sense, the internet culture, I mean, how many different flags are there here, right? Allison's German. There's like, you know, there's obviously a lot of Americans. There's people in Asia, et cetera. So like, um, you kind of, we kind of have like this unlocked globe. And uh, so we kind of need a new culture for that. The one thing I will say is the reason the physical component, the reason I stress that quite heavily is that there's a lot of innovation you cannot do without the physical world. You can't, you can't build tall buildings. You can't get flying cars. You can't get, you know, biomedical innovation and so on. If it's just online, as awesome as Bitcoin is and so on. The way I think about it is it's like the kitty corner approach. You, you know, retreat to advance, right? It's a tactical retreat to high ground and then you press forward, right? Sort of like, you know, the, uh, Google, for example, initially made their money in search and then they attacked Microsoft in docs and office and so on, right? So you go outside in, right? You exit to enter, you build up strength in the cloud and then you return to the land in force, right? Like descending from a lightning bolt, boom, like this and just all the terrain clears and all the girders go up, right? And your drones just like assemble everything, right? And that I think, I think is going to be possible. That is a wonderful segue into the physical world and into the bits and pieces that we want to build there. And, you know, we share a really strong interest in longevity. Uh, we've also mm -hmm. collaborated on a hackathon for building better technology trees to actually push a bunch of technologies forward, including longevity, but also BCIs and what have you. So, you know, can you speak for a few words really just on your vision of like, where can we go in this more transhumanistic futures? How can like tech trees get us there? And sure. do you want to address AI? That would be absolutely wonderful. Sure, sure. So so basically the tech tree thing is something I think uh, you know, Foresight and I and others for sure have been thinking about independently. I mean, it comes from civilization, uh, the game. And it's actually a reconciliation of, you know, the great man theory of history and the sort of tides of history or movements of history thing. So, you know, the great man theory of history is individuals like Steve Jobs or Satoshi move the world, and the tides of history is just like you know, these things are in the air and, and whether it's a Newton or a Leibniz, anybody could have invented calculus. Somebody was going to do it at that time that it was right. And the reconciliation of those two, I think, is the tech tree model where it is true that no one person can reinvent all of technology from the beginning, you know, from the smelting of ore and, you know, invention of engines and so on. So there is a base, you're standing on the shoulders of giants, but then one new giant can find a particular area of the tech tree to extend. And that's a great man theory of history, right? Like Satoshi, there's nobody else. There's no Leibniz to Satoshi's Newton. He extended the tech tree in a direction that people had not thought of, right? Um, and it took years before somebody kind of imitated that. So enumerating the tech tree and seeing what is possible and aggregating people's um, intelligence around that is different than the last 20, 30 something years of of tech, because the last 20, 30 something years has been very entropic. For example, if you take the top five YC companies, it's like Stripe and Airbnb and Dropbox, they have nothing in common beyond their corporate structure and their initial bootcamp, right? They're not 
part of a common vision of the world. Nothing against them. They're great companies. Don't get me wrong, right? But basically, it's not like they all fit into a longevity tech tree. And one thing is not going to, insofar as they do snap together, it is something where it's like, you know, maybe it's like an API integration or something like that. One company uses Stripe, right? Um, what you could get potentially with the longevity style tech tree or more generally a tech tree is you have an organization of a venture capital portfolio that is not purely entropic, that is directed, directed yet decentralized, right? So you have 30 different innovations. Anybody who's part of your, you know, uh, VC, a community can look at this and they can say, okay, I will decide to work on, you know, uh, metformin and, oh, I'm really interested in biomarkers for longevity and so on and so forth. Right. And people can kind of themselves spread out and work on different nodes, but everybody also feels like they're working towards a common cause, right? It's not entropic. It's forced long a distance, right? It's work. And then people can hop between things and. Uh, you know, there's still a shared story. People kind of know folks in that community. I've seen the power of this in cryptocurrency, which is sort of, um, it's kind of intermediate between, let's say, YC and this future that I'm describing, because everybody in cryptocurrency knows the story of Satoshi, and they have moral values that are in common, right? You know, if, if you're YC, like the moral value is something like people like Paul Graham's essays or make something people want, which is fine, okay? Then within your crypto, kind of it goes up a level, okay? Uh, Satoshi good, inflation bad, deflation, uh, good, decentralization good. These sort of guttural, visceral moral values are there embedded in the narrative. And if you go from Binance to FTX to Kraken to Coinbase, everybody in the space has heard the story of Satoshi. It's like literally like a biblical kind of thing. It binds folks. They have a common narrative of what the future is and what, what, right? It's actually really important, right? That's actually a much stronger tech community in some ways than a community that's just purely about price, right? And purely about, you know, technology or whatever. If you're, if you're just about technology, as, as awesome as technology is, you will get rooted by somebody who is totally focused on what's good and bad, right? Tech people tend to think about what's true and false and profitable and unprofitable. They're not naturally inclined typically to saying, that's good and that's bad. Why? Because good and bad usually means, you know, eliding some complexity, lecturing somebody, yelling at somebody, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens if you outsource that, you don't have comparative advantage, you have comparative disadvantage. Because then those folks who control the definition of good and bad control the definition of resource allocation. Good and bad goes to good and banned, you know, and, and so on and so forth, right? That's how people can, you know, lose control of their companies and, and, and whatnot. In crypto, though, there's a moral thing that kind of pushes back against that. And the tech tree gives even more of a push because now everybody has the same story of, I don't know, let's say David Sinclair. And, uh, you know, well, actually, it's funny. The longevity story hasn't fully been told, right? And actually, I think that'd be a good story to tell. For example, if you, you know, if you Google eternal life, do you know what the number one hit is? It's Christianity. You are, oh, Christianity? Well, I would have yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter viral that has a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, I think that basically the reason I say that is eternal life has a hook that goes back very, very deep into humanity, you know? And so you could tell the story of longevity as a story of making miracles real, you know, to literally like, you know, extend life and, you know, cure blindness and cure deafness and heal the sick, right? Like literally those kind of biblical type stories, those religious stories, um, you know, I've, I've got to actually 
in the V2 of the network today, I'm going to have this section on what I call practical miracles, like genomic reincarnation, which I've tweeted about. Um, I could take a lot of these things and with, you know, sufficiently advanced technology like Arthur C. Clark, you know, you could actually make them, make them real. And so the longevity story, the tech tree thing, what it does, it aligns community. It gives a way to organize entrepreneurs and the funding and the VCs. It's decentralized yet directed. Okay. That's, that's my, that's my comment on longevity. Uh, my comment on AI. Uh, well, so, you know, it's funny. I did, I did machine learning and computational statistics in the context of, uh, genomics for many years, bioinformatics for basically like, you know, first 10, 13 something years of my professional life. And so it's funny to see everybody talking about the stuff that I've worked on every day, years and years. It's kind of like, you know, Donald Knuth, um, Obviously, there's a lot of new stuff in deep learning. Don't get me wrong, right? But it's kind of like uh, Donald Knuth in 1991. You know, I think he published something like 15 years of email is enough. I'm not answering email anymore in 1991. Okay. And that's kind of funny because obviously he was so ahead of the curve that this this thing that most people had never experienced was like old hat, right? Anyway, so uh, so it's a little bit amusing, you know, if you're, if you've seen a lot of this stuff, it's kind of like being in crypto or stuff like that. We've, or C setting, you know, people have talked about new countries. Patrick's talked about new countries for more than a decade, and now it's actually starting to happen, right? Sometimes you're kind of out there in the wilderness for a while. Anyway, so with ML, with stats, um, a few remarks on current, the current spate of, of innovation and deep learning. First is, uh, it's amazing. It's also something where anybody's moat seems to get liquefied in a week. Right. So the awesome thing is really the advent of decentralized AI, right? With stable diffusion and where it's like truly open. It's not, you know, choke pointed through an API. As much as I respect the folks who are doing centralized AI, um, I think it's kind of like the difference in Unix and Linux. Any developer will prefer the unlocked version where you can actually extend it and make it your own. Right. So the advent of decentralized AI, I think, is apocal. I think stable diffusion is maybe the most important, you know thing that's happened in AI for a while. More important than, in some ways, the distribution model is more important than the technology itself, just to show that it's like unlocked. Um, the the concept of like just everything just getting liquefied is that, you know, this month's world record result is just topped by something else a week later and topped by something else again. So it's a challenging area to build a business. You might want to be an investor there um, or it's certainly a developer. It's cool, but you sort of just expect your business just get liquefied by something that just came, you know, your, your state of the art. And then like two months later, something much, much better comes out and it's just using a different paradigm and, you know, oh boy. Right. So, um, so it's an amazing area to create value. I'm not sure it's a great place to make money yet though. I think, you know, well, because of that reason, since it's very hard to figure out what has enduring value there, I think guys like scale, uh, you know, uh, scale.ai, which do the training data, that seems like sell, they'll do quite well. Um, I think that, uh, in terms of what it means, um, you know, AI content creation, obviously, I mean, the, the people have made this observation. It's not unique to me at all, but, um, AI for self-driving or something like that is a series of very precise operations with a low tolerance for error. AI for content creation has a very high tolerance for error. Okay. You know, that is to say, the image can have various fuzz around it. In fact, stable diffusion, I mean, these diffusion models are basically random walks, you know, in a sense, or guided random walks. Um, you know, with text, there's many possible outcomes of a generated document that could work. It's a small set of a high dimensional space, but it's not a, 
it's on a, it's on a, like a discrete set of just one, right? It's a large, it's a, it's still large in absolute terms. Lots of different texts could be reasonable answers in, in the language model. Um, and so what that means is all kinds of content that you can tolerate some error in, which is a large amount of content. So it's music, that's movies, that's images, that's text, that's, uh, you know, things that we don't normally think of as content, like, you know, maybe programs, you know, for example, Replit's, co- you know, version of GitHub Copilot, all those things are now AI-aided, right? There's Lex.page, this AI-based Google Docs. So every piece of content generation, like, you know, Figma will have AI content generation and so on. Everything will just be like templates to the nth power, right? Which means that people who are productive will come way more productive. And people who are mediocre will need to like kind of learn this new tooling and so on. Um, So that's like, you know, one, that's the first order. The second order is, just the liquidation of Hollywood and U.S. media. Um, and so that's basically something where, you know, if they were like on the ropes in the, in the you know, like 2010s after the disruption of Google and Facebook and the internet, and some of them, you know, have, have built so, subscription services and so on. Many of them are on the ropes. This is just going to finish them off. And why? Because it's going to distribute the ability to create high production value content to anybody in the world. Right. You're Brazilian, you're Nigerian, you're Indian, you're Israeli, you're Japanese. You can tell your own story now. And you do not have to rely on the US media corporation to do it for you. So that is hugely important, insanely, insanely, insanely important as a consequence of AI content creation will be content decentralization. Okay. And so it's not, I mean, the thing is with Twitter, you could put out text, but now you'll be able to put out movies, not just like a YouTube movie of self-recording, but a high production value movie, a high production value piece of music gets de-skilled. People can tell stories. Okay. I don't think people realize what a big deal that is because uh, stories unify communities, you know, stories like all these people in any given subreddit or something like that will now not just be like typing text at each other, but literal mini movies or what have you. I mean, TikTok, obviously we're already on the path of this. That's what TikTok is. That's what YouTube is, et cetera. But like the scale of it, I don't think is, is fully appreciated yet. Eventually that becomes like full immersive VR communities. You're already seeing the, the 3D content generation. And so what that means, I think, is um, you, you take that and you intersect that with the stuff I've been talking about with crypto communities. You have communities that have their own fully built out thought through Star Wars extended universe type narratives, right? Um, around keto and the evils of the food pyramid, right? Or, you know, you have the Marvel extended universe around, um, you know, why you need to get nine hours of sleep a night and, you know, everything's just, boof, you know, like no electric lights past 9 p.m. or something like that, right? You could imagine all kinds of communities that tell different stories like this, that have different premises, as opposed to the 1950s model of everybody's watching I Love Lucy at, you know, and zombie-like at, at a certain time, right? So, um, I mean, I could talk more about AI, but that's, those, that's some of the stuff I've been thinking about in terms of AI content creation. I'd say one thing else, which is AI also allows people to sort of substitute for, um, you know, like... I've, the number of people that you need to start a business just keeps dropping. You know, you had one person doing Minecraft and one person doing Bitcoin and 12 people doing Instagram and 55 people doing WhatsApp. So the the, the power of a small group, the leverage that you can get on high IQ people working hard in a small group, is just bananas, you know? 
And so you just don't need to necessarily build large teams or have a lot of funding. You just hit, hit the right keys at the right time. I call it, you know, something to tell my founders, all you have to do is type faster. That's it. You know? So, all right, go ahead. I, I, I got that. On that. Um, yeah. No, and I think it's a positive, you know, um, vision, but it's like more near term, like on the very long run, you know, like, are you worried about like AI singletons or do you think that we oh. actually have like a decentralized instantiation of AIs? If so, how? Um, you know, that, so I think that I, I don't know who I don't quite remember who said, I think Peter Thiel of like crypto libertarian AI is libertarian or something along those veins. Like, is there yeah. a endless future through cryptographic technologies with AI? Um, I like, I like Thiel's poke, but I think you can modify it in a few ways. First is, um, there's, there's decentralized and centralized. I actually put it as a triangle. Why? Because you have AI, which you might identify with, uh, in particular, actually with China, centralized AI. Then you have crypto, which is sort of, let's call it uh, market. You know, it's kind of the, uh, that's one part of the Western psyche. And then you have social, which is the third part of the triangle. And that's like voting or democracy. It's another part of the Western psyche, right? And AI, you might put as harmony, right? Um, because it's just all become one. It's just, it's a, it's a different way of, with markets, it's let the market decide. With democracy, it's a bunch of voting. With AI, it's harmony. Just the AI brain just takes care of it. And it's like the movie Transcendence all become one. Um, it's a different way of doing decision making. And you think about it as three different poles here. This is like my, you know, NYT, CCP, BTC kind of triangle with social, um, AI, crypto, kind of these three things. Um, well, so first is uh, you have centralized and decentralized versions of each. You have decentralized social, decentralized AI, decentralized crypto, and you have centralized social, centralized AI, centralized crypto, right? So centralized social is obvious. That's Facebook and and you know Twitter and so on. Um, decentralized social is, for example, ENS. Okay, so that is to say, like being able to log into your ENS. It's Orbit. It's this kind of stuff. Um, it is uh, Lens Protocol. It's DSO, uh, it's Farcaster, and and what I think that's that's rising. Okay, um, decentralized crypto is obvious. Centralized crypto is what it's a CBDC, right? It's it's you know like China's digital yuan. Uh, decentralized uh, centralized AI is obvious. That's like you know uh, OpenAI or Google. Decentralized AI is stable diffusion, and so that's actually I think the right axis is maybe obviously centralization decentralization versus AI versus crypto, because you can have centralized and decentralized versions of each. Nice one. Okay, that was a nice wrap. I, I know we have a ton of questions. I also want to be really mindful of your time. So, sure. Um, uh, well, okay. Well, if you give us another minute, then uh, I'll just go down via, I think, where's a friend or where Shadi already had to leave. Let's see, David, if you're here, uh, then go for it. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to follow up. I mean, you started in the very beginning, and and thank you for all that. Started at the very beginning, speaking about uh, your, your frustration with the FDA and and wanting to work on experimental drugs, and you had this really proactive line that it's easier to start a country than it is to reform the FDA. And I'm just wondering, yes, if you but, go but, back but include the first part. Include the first part, and the reason is just as it's easier to start Bitcoin than reform the Fed, it might be easier to start a country than reform the FDA. And the reason is that first part reduces the degree of craziness of it to just somewhat crazy rather than totally crazy. Go ahead. Well, no, I I, I don't... Yeah, I wouldn't take issue with the starting the country part. What I'm curious about, if you can clarify, is how does the network state solve the FDA problem? 
Where oh, phase sure. one, phase two, phase three, phase four, does the, if I'm still in the U.S., aren't I still under the U.S. jurisdiction? Ah, great question. Okay. So um, the answer for that is once you have a large enough community, okay, with good enough media and so on and so forth. Have you seen the movie da- Dallas Buyers Club? Yes. Wonderful movie. Okay. With, right. So with a thousand Dallas Buyers Clubs, you will delegitimize the current FDA. Okay. There's a, for example, there's a, there's a PDF that I wrote 10 years ago that I still think holds up fairly well today. Um, okay. Read, read that PDF that gives a ton of specific examples. Um, it's like, you know, from, you know, from the FDA fast tracking these body scanners through airports to them saying that there's no generalized right to bodily and physical health in a court case that you don't like control your own body. All of these crazy things the FDA has done, right? Blocking um, a guy, you know, Cohan from actually getting a, a, a drug that would have saved his life. All of these kinds of things. Um, so, uh, one second. So, all of these uh, kinds of things are things that um, have actually happened, and each of them can be made into a 140-second clip. Okay, let's say you've done that, right? Um, crucially, I'll give three edits, right? First is you need to kind of delegitimize. Second, you need to have a V3 that is better than the current thing. Why do I say it's V3? Well, uh, I'm not a pure anarchist, and one thing that I want to you know make clear is People actually do want a regulated marketplace. Why? This is just a, it's like a meta market kind of phenomenon. For example, they want the star reviews and the ratings on Amazon, right? Uh, they want uh, you know the filtering of bad actors on eBay. And in general, you can think of many of these scaled cloud marketplaces as cloud regulators that give star reviews and ratings of bad actors. This is a whole talk in its own right. I call it regulation is information, a big part of you know V2 of the book. But basically, you actually want a regulator that is better than the FDA in the same way that Bitcoin is better than the Fed. It didn't just replace the, it didn't just end the Fed, it exited the Fed, right? It replaced the Fed with something better. And that's always harder than just saying destroy. It's saying build, right? So what does a better regulator than the FDA look like? That's the second part. The first part is delegitimizing the current thing. The second part is what does a better regulator look like? So I'll give a few examples. One is you're able to scan a barcode of a drug anywhere in the world and instantly get Everybody who's ever taken that drug, all the reviews of it, all the doctors that have prescribed it, the side effects of it, potentially the pharmacogenomics of it, if they've got genome sequences. So you can see that there were a thousand people with the AA variant that took this and they had no side effects, but 50 people with the AT variant, self-reported side effects and so on, right? Nothing I described there is technologically infeasible. It's simply actually doing it. And crucially, it's cross-border because physiology is cross-border right? Somebody with similar genetics that's living in Australia, you should be able to pool your information with them across borders. The national regulator is not necessarily the right form for that, right? Um, And, you know, people, you know, I talked about this as, quote, Yelp for drugs. And people are like, oh, you're so stupid tech, bro, blah, blah. But, you know, most people don't know that there's, uh, you know, post-market surveillance, right? That's actually phase four. And there's like a, a form that the FDA has. There's like a PDF, right? Um, I'll give you the exact, I think it's like the 483 or something. Um, the FDA has a form for post-market surveillance. 
Uh, and you, you've never filled this out, right? Um, reporting adverse events. Gosh, I forget the form number. Hold on one second. Um, anyway, point is, there's a PDF that you can fill out, and um, the you, you've never filled it out, okay? And uh, the uh, here it is, the MedWatch forms, okay? It's a thirty five hundred A, okay? You've never filled out this form. Why have you never filled out this form? Um, or actually, no, for patients and consumers, thirty five hundred B, okay? So this is what you are. It's a consumer friendly version of the. It, this is what they call consumer friendly. Okay, now, um, why, why does what do you, what do you actually want with this? What do other product reviews look like? Looks like one touch, right? So once you see the thirty five hundred B, obviously you can do better than this with an app, obviously, right? So now you're starting to take over one aspect of what the FDA does, right, with something that's better. Okay. Uh, another example would be like reviews for medical tourism abroad. Another example would be telemedicine. Um, in fact, one of the things I talk about in, in um, you know, V2 of the book, but I've also talked about this online, is there are actually many exits from the FDA already, right? So, um, you know, a partial list, there's right to try laws, there's CLIA labs and laboratory developed tests, there's compounding pharmacies, there's off-label prescription by MDs. There's countries that aren't harmonized with FDA. Okay. Those are five separate exits on five different dimensions, which are worth understanding. Okay. And, um, you know, they always try to go after them. They've attacked compounding pharmacies a while ago. They've, they always try to kind of close the LDT loophole is how they talk about it. Right. Um, and force everybody into the 510K pathway. But there are, you know, it's like, uh, there shall be no other gods before me. Okay. But once you see these exits, you can actually take them, each of them, write stories around them, build apps around them, show that you can have a regulatory system that's better than that of the FDA. And now what you start doing is you're doing transfer of sovereignty, okay? You're chipping away at FDA sovereignty and you're transferring it. For example, rights try laws are transferring some of that sovereignty to state regulators, right? Anti-harmonization statutes, for example, being able to do stem cells in Germany, which basically say that the German health regulators are taking a different route than the U.S., is starting to break away pieces. Once you've done that, once you've gotten the equivalent of like a special economic zone, whether it's in, in a physical zone where you've improved on the FDA with right to try laws in a given state, or it's a digital zone where you've done something better than the FDA's um, 3500B online, now you take that, you put your energy of your million person network state behind it, and you say, that should be the law of this country and that country and this country and that country. Right. So it's a little bit like Deng Xiaoping's strategy, where he didn't just try to flip China from capitalism to communism overnight. He proved it out in, or sorry, from communism to capitalism overnight. He proved out first special economic zone in Shenzhen. That worked. They did like four more across the Eastern seaboard. That worked. And then he was able to use the leverage and the political capital from that to reform the rest of China. Okay. And so, in the same way, what we do is we have these pilots, which, by the way, don't have 100% success rate. So you have to get people's expectations are on improving on the FDA, either digitally or physically or both. We show that it does. We delegitimize the FDA and show all their abuses. So it's a combination of attack and build, attack and build. And then you kind of, you, you have these pockets of liberalization around the world, right? Either physical or digital. And you're just con constantly raining fire in terms of, hey, look at this drug lag. Hey, why didn't we get the Moderna vaccine in a week? 
answer is because we didn't have challenge trials. We could have had people just walking up and saying, hey, look, just like I'm a soldier, I'm a volunteer, please give me the vaccine, A, and then B, expose me to the virus. And then we could actually see that the thing worked in a few in a few days, in a few weeks, and we could have had the, the, the vaccine deployed to all of these seniors in, in a few weeks. All of that is on the FDA's head, right? Same as their restriction of EUA as emergency use authorizations during the pandemic. This lab in Seattle had to actually do civil disobedience in order to get this test out. All that's on the FDA's head, right? And uh, that's why people didn't know how many coronavirus cases there were early on. The point being that you combine the media delegitimization uh, with, crucially, the productive aspect of building something better, both in the U.S. and around the world. And that's how you can do this. And that's actually a playbook, by the way, for not just the FDA, but for other regulatory agencies. In fact, you know, it's funny. Um, I actually did a thing with, uh, I guess, a friend of Foresight, the um, Peter Diamandis of the XPRIZE Foundation. And he asked me, you know, he's like, you know, so what would be a great, you know, XPRIZE to do? Uh, you know, for advancing technology. And I said, well, you should do the X Prize version of the Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism on U.S. regulatory agencies. Okay. And why do I say that? Everybody here can name the founder of Amazon, right? You can name founder of Microsoft. You can name all these tech people, you know, founder of Snapchat, et cetera. Can anybody name anybody at the FDA? Okay. Maybe Alice yes. can. Okay. We have a bunch Fine. of them in our biotech group. Okay. I'm sure there's some good ones. Okay. Uh, some of them I assume are good people, blah, blah. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the, the thing is that, uh, you know, most people cannot name folks at FDA, SEC, FAA, et cetera, et cetera, right? There isn't personal accountability. These people are not elected. They can't be fired. Okay. They have nothing, you know, meaning there's no, there's no electoral nor market theory of accountability for them. Right. And they're anonymous. And so they exercise power without accountability. And so uh, just having an XPRIZE version of the Pulitzer Prize, and by the way, one other thing that's important is these regulatory agencies retaliate against folks in industry who speak about it. That's actually why you don't hear about it. It's like a black hole where things go in and then the, the information doesn't escape the black hole, right? It's like, you know, uh, it's like uh, being in the line at the airport security and, you know, you, you don't complain about the TSA because you don't want to miss your flight. You don't want a retaliatory wait time. You don't complain about FDA or SEC or FAA or anything like that because you don't want a retaliatory denial of your 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 application. Right. So the uh, so the answer to your your question is multifold. It is a combination of physical exit. It is digital and physical alternatives. It is media delegitimization. It is. AI content creation to tell these stories, right? And it's investigative journalism, true true investigative journalism, by the way. It's citizen journalism, not corporate journalism. All of these media corporations essentially have an iterated game relationship with FDA and uh, you know these uh, these institutions. What happens is um, FDA will want to go and put a hit on some company or some person, and they will leak the information to a journo who will then put out a story that attacks that person and says, so-and-so evil, you know, corporation put, you know, they, they put dihydrogen, they spill dihydrogen monoxide all over the ground at their factory. And, you know, dihydrogen monoxide can be toxic at high temperatures and, and it's water. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so they will do something where they make it sound horrible. You know, they went after uh, tiger bomb, for example, you guys know what tiger bomb is? Tiger bomb. It's like this. Yes. You, you put it here when you have a headache. Yeah. It's like this famous thing. It's like a, um, 
you know, this is 10 years ago, US FDA warned Singapore maker of Tiger Bomb products, right? And, uh, you know, agency inspectors found that employees were untrained. Now, look, Tiger Bomb was something that was like, that's been around for decades, right? What exactly was the issue? When you actually drill into it, this thing that they were saying was unsafe. There was like a guy on the line who spoke Chinese rather than English, and he couldn't answer immediately the questions that this you know, FDA inspector posed to him. Therefore, the entire medication is unsafe, right? And so like the thing is, once you realize that these regulators are like journalists in the sense of being the most unreliable of narrators, right? They're like the TSA guys who want to make everybody out to be a terrorist that comes through their their aperture in order to justify their budget. Just like that security theater, much of this is safety theater. Once you kind of have these lenses, I, I what I've just given you is like a lens, and then you apply that lens and you can start pulling a lot of examples that are like that. It's a lens that the corporate you know media outlets aren't going to give, but the citizen journal outlets citizen journal outlets could, right? That gives another piece of the puzzle. So put all those together. That's kind of your strategy for dealing with the FDA. It's delegitimize, it's prove alternatives, it's scale alternatives through lobbying and through investigative journalism. We had recently, uh, two links I shared was one, Mike Sin, who's also in this group from QDAO. They gave uh, kind of like a project presentation on like a new FDA that could be in Prosper. Um, and then we also had Tom Bell, who I think um, was also in one of the network state VR rooms uh, a while back. Him and uh, his collaborator are currently doing like a um, study on jurisdictional arbitrage for longevity. So basically figuring out which jurisdictions are actually really good right now um, to go so that overall you can increase competition and common knowledge that there's others out there. Uh, mm -hmm. So more people actually move their companies out and increase uh, the pressure a bit on um, uh, on companies here in the US. So there's definitely, I think, some interesting projects that are actively spanning out. And obviously the uh, Prosper one is, uh, I think, quite at least network state aligned uh, to this end. But that's yep. physical. Uh, yes. And sorry, I mean, by the way, it doesn't have to be physical, but I, I, but I do think there should be a path physical. Yeah. Okay. Well, they're already there. Let's see. With the current regulations, yes, they are. With the regulations changing there. Uh, let's see how for how long. Let's hope for longer. Um, okay. Cool. So we, I mean, we are now at, at half an hour later, and so we do want to. Kind of like that was touch your time. We have like a few more questions, but I also totally understand if you have to double. <laughs> Great. I've got, yeah, I can go a little bit longer. Go ahead. Okay, good. Then Blake. How about another five, five, 10 minutes, right? Great. Okay. Well, thanks again. Um, so my question is about the power, uh, power structures and ownership structures for network states. Um, you know, and these, th a lot of things are supposed to be decentralized, but um, we often see in the end that they do become centralized and captured. This can happen. Um, and especially when this is an open problem, I still see of how to do decentralized governance, um, how to prevent sort of the default case, which is a lot of us are entrepreneurs, investors, we're used to building things and profiting off of them. And, and sort of, if we don't have, you know, the sort of, um, new, new approaches built yet, we might just fall back on the old thing and have these states become corrupted, perhaps in an irrecoverable way, because precisely because they'll be outside the control of, um, the current flawed, but nonetheless, you know, somewhat democratic system that was that check. If we exit that and we fail to get this right, could we be, I mean, what, what are the risks? Great question. So, so the first thing is, you know, my model is the network state is premised on 100% democracy as opposed to the current system, which is what I call 51% democracy, which is the barest level of democracy. That say you have 51% that go and they get what they voted for. And then for the other 49%, it's dictatorship. 51% democracy is 49% dictatorship in the sense that 
what is a dictatorship when people are not getting what they voted for and those 49% did not get what they voted for. In fact, they voted for the other guy and they feel like disenfranchised. They feel dictated to the 51% democracy has the barest level of legitimacy. It's a Fosbury flop. It's just the very, very, very barest thing you could have to be called a, a quote democracy. It's the barest level of consent of the governed. And it is the consent of the governed. If you go back, you can look at that phrase that underpins any theory of legitimacy. Given sufficient consent, you know, you can do things just like at the individual level, you can extend that to the community level. And so what the network state model is based on is saying with modern technology, certainly people have observed that we've gotten more polarization, fractionation, and so on and so forth. Could we take in the opposite direction and build much more consent, much more community? And I think that that community and that, you know, that opt-in set, that comes before, I mean, look, capitalism, democracy, they're great, but they're both dispute resolution mechanisms. That's to say, you know, within your household, you're not holding an auction or a vote for every resource allocation decision. There's an aspect of mutual trust, right? And that community aspect is how that scales beyond a household to a community where not everything is like marketed and quantified or voted and politicked, right? Instead, there's a community aspect where there's shared values and not everything actually has to go to this dispute resolution thing. The reason I think people talk about democracy and capitalism so much in modern America is there is no community left. There is no shared value, right? Beyond the dollar, right? I mean, people would sooner burn the flag than burn a dollar. I think probably literally, right? And um, so, so once you start thinking about that, uh, you know, like the so first is you, you're optimizing more consent, right? Much higher consent in the current system. Second is um, you are you have you have several built-in checks. The check and balance is not within the state, but outside it. Um, you know, as great as the founding fathers were, I think we're going to conclude, perhaps in this technological era or in the future, that a government cannot limit itself. Checks and balances cannot happen within the government, right? In the same way that, like, you know, many people who are progressives would laugh, oh, yeah, companies are going to self-regulate law. It's like saying, oh, a government is going to self-limit itself. A government is going to guard civil liberties? No. You need something outside the government that will guard civil liberties, right? How, what else is going to guard human rights and property rights from something that has all the guns, right? Or that has the weapons? The answer is choice between governments and reducing the barriers to exit. And so that is the guard on what you're saying is essentially there's a social smart contract combining both the smart contract and Rousseau's concept of the social contract that you don't just do a click-through, you do the equivalent of a DocuSign, right? You do a digital signature, Okay. When, before you enter the community, you exceed, you literally read the terms. You might have to deposit some cryptocurrency, right? Or even lock your ETH name or, or other kinds of things. We can probably figure out those are at least two things. You can imagine other kinds of things. You kind of stake or lock these things. And now you sort of, you know, you've read the whole thing and you're bound by this for like a year, for example. And a year later, you have to go and re-up or two years. You have a subscription term, right? And this is something intermediate between you know, the state owns you from birth, right? Which is the East German paradigm, the Cuban paradigm, the North Korean paradigm, the Nazi paradigm, the Soviet paradigm, where you're basically, you know, the, the American Confederate South, that you're a slave of the state, right? Whether it's communism or, 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 you know, which is, uh, or, or actual slavery, which are basically about the same thing in, in communism. They, they work people to death in the gulag. That was basically slavery, right? Um, you know, you didn't have a choice. So there's one model where you're like literally a, a property of the state. East Germany would shoot people for trying to leave, right? North Korea still shoots people for trying to leave. Cuba shoots people for trying to leave, right? That's that's bad. 
On their hand, it's also bad to have no loyalty whatsoever, to be a total mercenary, right? To hop from place to place and have no roots. Uh, you know, there's a good to that. I like the digital nomad aspect. I'm sympathetic to it. However, you know, if, if everybody is just leaving at a moment's notice for everything and there's no way of having long-term orientation, you, you have the equivalent of day trading, but for countries, right? I think, you know, we can err more in that direction from where we are today, but you can also overcorrect in a direction, right? So giving some provision for the fact that any good thing overcorrects, what you want is something that has a provision for opt-in loyalty. And that's the term of the social smart contract. It's similar to what kind of Reed Hoffman talks about with tour of duty, right? A company is not a family. You don't have lifelong loyalty, but it's also not a mercenary kind of thing. Instead, you have a tour of duty of a limited number of years, and then you can re-up and you can go longer. And this kind of checks and balance on both sides. And the check is outside of the state rather than within it. I'll do one more and then then I'll jump. Cool, Sam, go for it. Thank you. Um, well, Aileen, thank you so much. Really make fun of your work. So really appreciate Fortnite and Austin for organizing this. Um, I'm part of a DAO called APS DAO. It's, uh, it's the Austin City DAO, Austin Texas in the U.S. And um, we're also working towards the same big vision of the network state that I oftentimes hear you talking about. But we're approaching it in a different model, and I'm wondering if you your thoughts on it. So basically what I've read... What I usually talk about, usually I speak for an online first, and they go into IRL, right? They go local. And we're trying to do with a network of, of local DAOs or city DAOs, start IRL first, and then go to the cloud, go online. So basically, we are in the process of starting multiple local DAOs down the city. There's a DAO in Vancouver, there's a DAO in Tampa, there's the Austin DAO, and I'm in charge. And uh, from here, then we scale to actually building a network fitted out in which some of the services that you would usually get from your uh, government, local government, become offered by the network. So say education, say healthcare, it almost becomes more beneficial for you to be part of the network than to be part of, of, of your local jurisdiction, right? But it's more optional. It's like, um, it, 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 it forces you less, like, move to any place or, or, or go to any place. Like, it, it, the network is coming together as you go into it. And I just want to get your thoughts on that, on that different approach towards invasion. I grew up first online tech and I'm the post of the other way around. You can try that. Um, you're not truly IRL first because you've got folks who have met online who are meeting IRL. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a good point. But I think like the, the geographic boundaries of... Where like, you, like you're not recruiting people off the street corner is what my point is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But is that something you ever considered when you were drafting your thesis or, or like, is there any rationale why you think that wouldn't work at all? Well, once one, I mean, in a sense, once one concedes that it's actually not IRL first, that it's actually, you've got an online community and you're just focusing more energy on the physical meetups. Um, I mean, I talk about that part in the book, which is the, um, the concept of in-person meetups to build trust. That's like step four in the network state in, in a thousand words. So I don't actually think it's that far off from kind of what I'm, what I'm saying. Uh, maybe what it is, perhaps if I, from to rephrase what you're saying is uh, focusing less on the ability to do digital collective action, but you form the community online, or at least you recruit online, you meet in person and you're doing in-person collective action as opposed to online collective action. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And specifically uh, in-person collective action bound to a geographical location. 
So about to the sure, sure, back. great. Yeah, I, I think there's t- there's basically yeah, I, I totally think that's a reasonable approach. Um, and there's many, uh, in a sense, what I've kind of tried to do is put out a customizable engine that has a path from going from a single person to a UN recognized sovereign. And then you can customize that in a variety of different ways to take, you know, just like you take Linux and it's meant to go and boot up full GUI and allow you to write device drivers. And you can customize that and have an embedded version, or you could have one that's, you know, meant for giant distributed computing, or you could have one that's like a robot controller that's got real-time constraints in the same <clears throat> same way. I think you can take that toolbox and you can use that for what you're trying to do. And I think that it'll be really cool and great. And I'd love to see it. Thank you. Appreciate it. And just a super quick follow-up question. Um, the main rationale we decided to start with an ILM version, kind of like online uh, next model, was because of the issue of sovereignty. Because every time that I, that I thought through the network state in the way that you oftentimes propose it, unless you're literally setting, you're always running into the into the sovereignty issue. And I I could never find a way for you to find sovereignty for a new local uh, uh, a new local network state without having to find that the existence of existing uh, jurisdiction. And I think and I, a model that's from IRL and is intrinsically prone to geography is a little bit more prone to, to survive and do not have to go into this uh, fine point of existing jurisdiction. So just want to get your quick thoughts on how... Yeah, I mean, so, so the less physical you are, paradoxically, the less you want the deal... So, okay... <clears throat> Depending on the situation, sometimes the guy who wants it more wins, and sometimes the guy who wants it least wins. Okay. The first is in a competitive situation, the second's in a cooperative situation. In a competitive situation, the guy who wants it more, the one who puts in more energy, runs faster, works harder, et cetera. In the second, in a cooperative situation where both people have to sign off on a deal where there's some, you know, leverage. The guy who wants at least has walkway leverage, and the other guy is like, no, 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 please come back, and has you know a bunch of terms that they add to the contract to make it work. And so, uh, when you're talking about quote sovereignty, the guy who wants at least, you kind of probably want to be there, okay? Why? Because mobility is leverage against the state. Law is a function of latitude and longitude. Let's say you've got your local, you've got your state, and you've got your federal overlays. If you can cheaply change your location, you can negotiate with a different government. If you are geo-locked, you can't. You don't have optionality. Therefore, if your goal is sovereignty, then you actually want to be as mobile as possible so that if this government doesn't work, then you go to another government. If they know that you don't have another option, then you don't have another option. Wonderful. I think this is a great place to stop. Uh, thank you Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you guys. You Thank you so much, Baladi. It was really, 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 really wonderful to have you on a final note. Speaking of in-person meetings, guys, if you want to meet this community in person in a castle in France uh, down here or in San Francisco at the Internet Archive and uh, at the Bird's Nest, and uh, we are basically reviewing progress across our long-termist tracks, uh, across our longevity rejuvenation cryonics tracks, across molecular machines, computing, atomic precise manufacturing, brain-computer interfaces tracks, crypto commerce, DSI and AI tracks, energy space and expansion tracks, and funding innovation and progress tracks um, coming up in November in France and in December in San Francisco. And I'd love to see you guys there. Uh, and then we can build the long-term trust that we need to then collaborate again in the venture woods. 
So uh, I hope to see you guys there. Thank you, Baladi. This was really, really wonderful. I'm very, very grateful that you came and talked to us again. Uh, I know that your recordings are usually like much, much loved in this community. So thank you a lot. Really, really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.